and welcome to this episode of Protestia Tonight for November 15th, 2022. I am your host, David Morrill, for the team of troublemakers at Protestia.com, and this is a program where we hope it will be glorifying to God, convicting the sinners, and edifying to the saints. This is a program with sincere questions and biblical answers. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now, if you are not already a patron supporter in the fight with us, you can do so for only $5.95 a month. For that, you will receive the full version of this program, the PTVIP, as we're now calling it, which is the the second half of the program that's not available if you're listening to this on the Bible Thumbing Wingnut RSS feed or your favorite podcatcher or on YouTube, uh, where we can't talk about some of the things that we really need to talk about because it's not a free speech platform. And we still find it unfortunate that it is the video platform of choice for a lot of Christian content creators. But, well, what can you do? We're here as well because you're here. And we want to thank you for for tuning in. Now, for $5.95 a month, you can get the full version of this program. You can ask sincere questions that we will answer on the second half of the program. So you can actually drive the content of this podcast yourself. For $19.95 a month, you can join us on Tuesday nights for the Bulldogmatic Bible study, which would have occurred just an hour before this program going live, except for um, a meeting of mine for work that got pushed up a week. So there's there's about one Tuesday a month where I can't make it because of scheduling conflicts. But the other the other Tuesdays, uh, we join together and study the Word and fellowship and pray for one another and and talk about the the news of the day. And we would love for you to join us. Um, now I, I haven't mentioned this on the last couple podcasts, but if you'd like to join us for that Bible study in 1995 a month is not a level at which you can support what we're doing here. Um, send us a message. The idea is not to have some sort of a paywall for a Bible study, but just to, as, as a way of limiting it to, um, just a handful because we can't do a hundred and 200 person Bible study on zoom. Uh, and so that's, that's a way to do it. But if you'd like to join us and, um, in 1995 a month is just a little too much, let us know. It's, and we will, we'll make sure you get into it anyway. Um, anyway, there are other levels of support as well. Uh, support levels that get you uh, patron swag, you know, with like mugs and, and, and shirts and hoodies and all this kind of thing. And, and that's something that pa- Patreon just does when, when you're at certain levels of support. Um, I slap logos on them. I haven't even received them. So, so, I mean, for those of you that have received some of that swag, let me know if it's any good. I, I assume it's pretty good, but I haven't actually seen it in person. Um, but no, this is not us selling, selling stuff. I was watching a, to, to, to take, uh, just a chasing a rabbit here right at the beginning. I was watching a, uh, YouTube video from Justin Peters where, um, some, some cage stage Arminian dude on YouTube who likes to go after Justin Peters all the time, decided to turn his guns on Susan Heck, who Susan Heck, if, if, for those of you that uh, don't know, uh, writes women's Bible studies, and she travels around the country uh, speaking to women at churches, and very solid, very biblical, um, very very committed to obeying Scripture as far as not teaching men uh, in any sort of corporate context. And yet this this YouTuber, Brian something or other, I don't know who it is, um, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, goes after her uh, really because she he just doesn't like, you know, who she partners with in ministry or who her friends are claims that um, because she's requested at churches that, uh, that they put up a table so she can put her books and materials on in case people would like to buy them. 
or something that she is selling the gospel ministry that she's that it's just it's just like the the um temp the exchangers in the in the temple um who were taking advantage of 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 worshipers and Justin Peters has a couple videos going hard back at this guy appropriately so um but it reminded me of that because we've been accused of, of the same thing for Patreon swag and other things like that, that, um, they, 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 that money basically comes directly out of what's, uh, out of what's given. And, and those of you who have been listening to this program for a while, know I, I don't take any money from this, not a dime. And so I, I have likewise been accused of somehow doing things for money around here. And I can assure you that's exactly the opposite of the case. I'm actually a fellow patron. So I actually, I actually pay to Patreon to support what we're doing here as well. And I would be honored if you would join me um, in the fight and keep discernment and polemics ministry alive on the internet. We're going to be discussing the sort of main body of the program here and what was teased in the thumbnail is going to be talking about when Christians persecute other Christians. And by this, I don't mean in the same light that perhaps the government might persecute us. But basically, for when you pay a price personally, when being the discerning one in your group or emphasizing discernment or insisting that uh, that doctrine is correct and practice is correct and being willing to actually approach brethren about it when you have issues, especially pastors and leaders in churches, when you're willing to do that and you pay a price for it, when you pay a price, we're going to work through some text in Luke 6 um, to discuss that specifically. Um, and I will, I'll try not to get too specific about any situations I'm going, going through personally because the idea here is not to necessarily drag my uh, local congregation or my church into any of these discussions, but an overall discussion about the biblical implications and applications of such things as it relates to polemics and discernment ministry. And the simple fact that if you are um, interested in this, if you follow this ministry, if you, if you support it in any way, even just saying, hey, I, I read Protestia. I listen to those guys sometimes. I watch their videos. Um, I think that what they say is important and true and helpful. Um, you may very well face ostracization. Excuse me. I didn't pronounce that quite right. You might be ostracized. Excuse me. I'm still getting over a little bit of this, the, the ends of this cold or whatever this was. I'm kind of getting to the end of it, but it's still bugging me a little bit, as you, you may be able to tell as we as we move along, but that's going to be our main topic. And we're also going to talk about uh, Al Mohler, like apparently not learning anything when it comes to um, abuse dynamics and whatnot, or, you know, just, just, he's trying to ride the fence. It seems between what the world teaches and the world's understanding of so-called abuse and what the, and what the Bible teaches and how it applies to, to Christian ministry and interaction. So we're going to, we're going to discuss that. Uh, we're also going to, in the PTVIP portion, do some election follow-up. And the reason I'm putting in the PTVIP is more or less because that it'll it'll get this video clipped off of uh, some of these non-free speech public platforms if we say what we need to say, or we we open up the discussion um, unapologetically about these things. They don't like actually talking about the the important parts of this issue. So we're moving that to the PTVIP. Uh, we're also going to check in at the beginning with um, this, the Sex Abuse Task Force of the Southern Baptist Convention. 
and the the implementation force or whatever that they've put in. I, I call it the revamped sex abuse task force. And we're now five months, five months into uh, post SBC 2022. And thus far, they have yet to, to demonstrate anything that they basically allowed the convention to be accused of and um, basically pointed the finger at all of us and said that we all need to corporately repent and, and have contrition and apologize and all these kinds of things. And so far, they've produced nothing. In five months, we have nothing. But we're going to check in with that. Before we get to all of that, though, the most important um, news of this day or any other day, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is, which is the reason that we do this. Now, I've said that on multiple podcasts, multiple podcasts over the last few weeks, that the reason that we do polemics and discernment ministry, the reason that protestia exists, the reason that pulpit and pen exists before that. And by the way, while, while I'm on that subject, pulpitandpen.org um, has gone down. I guess there was some sort of billing issue or something with the server. And so we're, we're, we're working on that, but the site is not disappearing. It will come back. So if you're, if you're looking for some older articles or some, some of the research and some of the uh, um, materials and things like that available at pulpitandpen.org, it has not, it has not gone away permanently or something. So we are, we're working on getting that back. Hopefully it'll be back uh, online very soon. Um, but anyway, the reason that these ministries exist and, and, is, is all for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Polemics and discernment ministry is evangelistic by nature. A lot of people don't understand this or don't realize this, but it's true. We're, we'll, and, and I will explain this later as we get into the, the main portion of this, the you will, you, you will pay a price portion of the podcast we're going to discuss. But the gospel um, is the good news. It is, it, the word means good news, and the good news of the gospel is that Despite the fact that we were all born in sin and in rebellion against God and dead in our trespasses and sin and headed to a, um, an eternity apart from God and in eternal punishment in hell, that's the consequences of our sin. The wages of sin is death. Yet the gift of God is, is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the gospel for those that would place their faith and trust in Jesus. So if you repent from your sin, repent of your sin, turn from your wicked ways and trust in the person and work uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your salvation, you can and will be saved. Salvation is a free gift of God uh, for those that place their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, you might ask, what does that mean? Place my faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, it's this. Jesus Christ um, actually paid that price for those who would be saved. So, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He's a, he, he is God, second person of the Trinity, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life that we had no ability to live, earning righteousness that we had no ability to earn, and then died a death on a cross in our place, paying a price we were supposed to pay for our sin. He paid that price instead and is offering um, his righteousness, his salvation as a free gift for those that would place their faith, hope, and trust in him. And Jesus died on that cross, a horrific, um, humiliating, violent um, death. And for the perfect son of God, um, just a, a, a price paid that we have no, we have no ability to really understand its, its scope, um, a miraculous thing. He died on that cross and, <coughs> excuse me, on the third day was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, Jesus conquered death on the cross. 
was raised from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father as payment for the sins of those that God would call as his own. And if you place your faith in trust in Jesus Christ, you can and will be saved as well. Now, Jesus died on that cross, was raised on the third day, and then ascended to the Father. He now is in heaven at the right hand of the Father and actively interceding on behalf of, of, um, of his people. So he, he was, as the scripture says, the firstborn of many brethren. And that those brethren are those of us that place our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ and are saved. We're regenerated. We're now adopted sons and daughters of the Almighty. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's the reason that, again, that this ministry exists. I will explain how that works, why that works, why it's important, and, and hopefully offer maybe some answers and some discussion for those of you that have experienced some of the things that I've experienced over the last couple of years in being involved in polemics and discernment ministry. And, and I'm still figuring out how to, to make this, to, to, to really reconcile these things because we face constantly the same um, misguided criticisms all the time. And that's not to say that there aren't things that we are valid criticisms from time to time. Nobody's perfect. We're still, we're, we're, we still bear the flesh. We still bear the sin nature and we sin and we make mistakes and we do things that aren't exactly what we should have done at, at any given time. And yet the majority of the criticisms that we face for doing this kind of work are, they're, they're, they're illegitimate. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. They're illegitimate criticisms and very often the criticisms are manipulations in a certain way, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to that topic. I want to get to the first topic here, which is the Southern Baptist convention in the 2022 meeting in, in June, uh, the sex abuse task force basically adopted certain recommendations, not all the recommendations from the LGBTQ supporting guideposts, but they adopted a few of them. And one of those recommendations uh, wound up with the 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 choosing and of a like an implementation task force to to um, try to move forward some of these ideas about what this SBC as an institution was going to do about the rampant widespread um, problem of sex abuse in the convention. Now, um, if you've watched this program enough, you know that that it is our view, my view, and, and the view at uh, the the rest of the uh, the team at Protesta here that. There isn't evidence of systemic rampant sex abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And first of all, there really can't be because it's not a denomination in the traditional sense. It's a cooperation of independent churches. And so any sort of systemic problem would have to be based off of the idea that either individual churches all over the country are having this problem, there's sex abusers in their midst, there's, there's abusers all over the place that they're covering up for, or based off the idea that the convention as a larger organization somehow has some sort of authority over these churches that it can, that it can control them from the top down, which is not true. That's not the way that it works. Baptist churches are autonomous because we believe that the local church is the only ecclesiastical authority actually commissioned in Scripture. There is not um, a pope or uh, a prince or some sort of a magisterium or something that rules over churches. The church is, as revealed in the New Testament, 
as prescribed in the New Testament, is the ecclesiastical authority. And it's and a church is made up of regenerate believers that worship and serve and minister together. That's what it's supposed to be. And so something like the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't have the authority to point at churches and tell them to do stuff. The most that it can do, the most that it can do um, in terms of taking action in a situation where a church over here has as an accused sex abuser or maybe maybe a convicted sex abuser, whatever the case may be, the most the SBC can do is disfellowship from that church. Basically say, you are no longer in cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. We no longer recognize you as an SBC church. Um, you have no, your, your church members cannot come and vote as messengers. They can't be involved in any way. Uh, we, you're no longer an SBC church. That's the most they can do. That, that or, uh, you know, Theoretically, they can report something to civil authorities, but again, that's the civil authorities now taking action, not the SBC. And so this all began, I guess this was yesterday, maybe the day before. Bruce Frank, who's an SBC pastor, he was on, he might, I think he was the chair of the original sex abuse task force that was commissioned in 2021. Um, his wife, uh, Lori, got into a, looks like a little bit of a tiff on uh, social media going after uh, William Wolfe. And William Wolf is a uh, uh, a former Trump uh, advisor. He's, he's deputy assistant secretary for for Trump, and he is a um, he writes at the um, the Freedom Center at Liberty University. Which uh, full disclosure, I am still working through a a, a postgraduate degree at Liberty myself. Very slowly because I'm busy and I want him not being able to take as many classes as I would like. But full disclosure, that's that's. Uh, there's a there's a tertiary you know tertiary relationship I suppose, um, but to, he's also uh, uh, working on an on an MDiv at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and so he's faced a lot of uh, pressure from people trying to go after at, at, after him through Al Moeller, pressure Al Moeller to I guess get him in trouble for something I don't know. I mean there is a First Amendment you know people forget about this that you know they say well he said something i disagreed with so i want to cancel him or get him in trouble i've faced this personally as as you guys know this exact kind of a thing um and so i'm i'm very defensive against those that would say you've exercised your first amendment rights to say something i don't like so instead of actually answering you substantively i'm going to try to cancel you i'm going to try to put pressure on your employer or the school that you attend or whatever to try to harm your life that's what they're doing and Lori Frank is not doing this here. Don't get me wrong, but there have been plenty of people to go after William Wolf on online. And you know, I suspect if I if I dug deeply, there are probably things that he he says or believes that I don't exactly agree with either. But that's the nature of that's the nature of free conversation. Believe it or not, I know that the internet doesn't seem to make this clear. You can disagree with your friends. You can be friends with somebody and largely agree on a lot of things and still disagree publicly and mature adults can do that without having to start burning bridges and getting and getting um bizarrely tribalistic about things but um i digress back to the Lori uh frank thing so she tweets out this was uh yesterday yesterday morning i wonder how many times uh william wolf personally presented the gospel one-on-one last week the actual mission or if he's just too busy planting stumps for SBC pastors to plow around from his academic political rhetorical bubble as the denomination declines. Now, first of all, 
I don't think you can say that if he's if he's actively in this fight and he's working on his schooling and he's writing at uh, Freedom Center and doing these things that he's in some sort of an academic bubble. That's silly. He's he's certainly in the fight. Agree or disagree about um, things he may have said. He's in the fight. He's not he's not in some sort of a bubble. But notice the notice the little bait and switch and and platform elites do this all the time all the time they do this kind of a thing where they they say whatever the issue is they they play the gospel card we've talked about this before this is lori flank lori frank playing the gospel card and here's how it works you have some sort of an issue that you disagree with a, a fellow believer about some sort of a doctrinal issue some sort of a political issue whatever it may be and instead of actually addressing the content of the issue you play the gospel card and you say something something that along the lines of, well, if you are as concerned about the gospel as you were about whatever the issue is that you don't want to actually address substantively, if you were as concerned about the gospel as you were about that, things would be going a lot better. We'd be winning a lot more people for Christ or this and that and the other. James Merritt, remember, did this at the annual meeting back in 2021. He played the gospel card when we were trying to discuss the problems with critical theory and critical race theory being brought into seminaries and brought into the convention and brought into churches, how damaging this was, he got up there and said something about, if we were as concerned about the gospel as, as, as we were about critical race theory, we'd have won the whole world to Christ by now, or some, some stupid nonsense like that, right? This is the same argument being presented by Lori Frank. You know, I wonder how many times, like, she doesn't know. She has no idea if, if William Wolfe is sharing the gospel one-on-one with anybody which by the way is only one of the ways to share the gospel only one of the ways this is the this is the bait and the, the the relationship thing the relationship bait and switch that goes on in evangelicalism right now where they say hey the the primary way to to spread the gospel is by developing a relationship with somebody first well of course that would mean that that our relationship with a person is more powerful than the message itself that's not what scripture teaches that's not what scripture teaches in fact a lot of the gospel spreading in scripture was the proclamation of the word. We would proclaim the gospel itself and the Holy spirit does the work, which I mean, if you think about it, thank God, because if people were looking to me or to you and our ability to perfectly navigate interpersonal relationships and be wonderful, wonderful friends to everybody um, for the gospel to go forward, we'd have big problems. I mean, I fail. I, I sin and hurt people that I'm close to. I make mistakes when I try to, um, when I try to, you know, sympathize with somebody or relate to them to to share Jesus. I screw it up all the time, and thank God that the power is in the gospel message. It is in the it's the power of the Holy Spirit that regenerates, that moves the the heart of the lost person to come to true faith. Thank God that's the case, because. If, if you listen to a lot of these big Eva types, they think that it's about them. They think that it's about, about their ability to be faithful, to do the work, their ability to, to relate to the person in just the right way. And this is why they end up softening the message as much as they do. This is, this is how we end up with the He Gets Us campaign. This false notion, false idea that the propagation of the gospel and the kingdom is built by us and our works rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we get Kevin Azell and the North American Mission Board 
saying, you know, don't worry about the fact that they're really teaching a false Jesus here with this. He gets us advertising campaign. If it can produce a few phone calls to SBC churches, uh, well, then it's worth it. You know, what is that? What is he doing with, with that kind of logic? It's the same thing that a lot of big Eva does. It's, it's, um, putting down the Holy spirit. It's diminishing the role of the Holy spirit in the propagation of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom. They think it's about them rather than just unapologetically standing up for truth and knowing that it, it may seem like losses. It may seem like losses in the interim, but this is a spiritual battle. This is, this is a battle of, of you know, in, in the spiritual realm rather than a pragmatic, we have to do the work or else it's not going to happen kind of a situation. But back to the tweet here. So um, she, she judges William Wolfe right here saying, well, I don't, how, how often has he presented the gospel? I don't know, Lori, how often have you? I mean, you realize what, what a heart judgment that is? And so she puts this out here. And um, it was quote tweeted by SBC Underground, who says, um, uh, two, two, looks like two different quote tweets. Um, can you see the f- first, this one I like, can you see the great omission in Lori Frank's great commission? Uh, Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Yes, this is, this is part of the great commission, kind of an important part. Sharing the gospel is only the beginning. We must also teach them all of God's truth. And then, uh, and then called her woke. Truly amazing how obsessed woke Christian Twitter is with William Wolf. Now this this is the one that got the attention of Bruce Frank, who, you know Lori's husband here, um, who said, "Let me see if I can find this here." That's just a retweet. But there was a either a quote tweet or a comment. Yeah, yeah, he laughed at the idea that she was called woke Christian. And so, so the. They quote, I got to fight. It's, it's hard to follow this stuff around sometimes because of the way Twitter works. But um, SBC Underground quote tweeted Bruce and said, the lack of self-awareness right here is so rich it'll give you diabetes. I like that they said diabetes instead of diabetes. I'll explain why. He said, they said there is no woke clownery like SBC woke clownery. I tend to agree. So Bruce, I, I got to take a little side note. Bruce, he says, by the way, make spell check great again. And not getting the Bruce, not getting the Wilford Bremley reference on all of the, the Wilford Bremley old commercials. He didn't say diabetes. He said diabetes. So that's become an internet thing for us to spell it diabetes because we think it's funny that, that that's, that's what uh, Wilford Bremley has always said. So they, fortunately, they put a little meme up here so we can hopefully figure it out. So anyway, let me... Let me jump over to the, uh, the, the meat of the conversation here. Basically, the debate ended up being about uh, why we haven't seen the rampant evidence of sex abuse in the SBC. They've had five months now, and supposedly the prior executive committee had a database of, of abusers that they never reported, which, of course, was just a, you know, a collection of news articles, a Google search, a LexisNexis collection. Um, but, but, uh, the, the save the SBC account said, um, the people who wrung their hands about abuse, the abuse crisis that totally exists in the SBC, but haven't been able to find a single case are totally the good guys and not the survivor community for their petty concerns. And, oh, they're not using the survivor community for their petty concerns. And 
this is the problem is we we've come to the conclusion and i think this is totally true that the abuse issue was simply used as a power grab in 2021 by by those that wanted to um emotionally manipulate the convention to to take power for themselves Bruce Frank replies, bro, surely you realize the logical fallacy of your statement. The recommendations were passed only five months ago. Many of them are in the process of getting set up by the new implementation. In the process? It's been five months, man. It's been five months. The report itself was limited to the EC only, and there was plenty of material there. So, yeah, so the, the, the report brought to us by LGBTQ Guidepost was only targeting the executive committee, not the independent churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, because that would have been inappropriate. The SBC doesn't have the authority to investigate um, autonomous churches. This is Baptist Polity 101. And and so uh, Bill Roach asks for the specific fallacy, and Bruce Frank replies, fallacy, a mistaken belief based on unsound argument, the argument that because the Credentials Committee hasn't made public any churches, like, why is... I mean, I hate to nitpick here, but why is Bruce using N-E like he's some sort of 12-year-old on TikTok? Like N space E has the same number of characters as any, A and Y. Whatever. Um, he says, the, the argument that because the Credentials Committee hasn't made public any churches does not equal the SBC um, not having issues with abuse and the need for massive improvements to make churches safer. Well, it might, Bruce. It might. If you can't find evidence that this is a rampant problem um, all over the convention, then what does the SBC have to do with it? Why would the, the SBC, the parachurch uh, cooperation that's supposed to exist largely for missions and for education, have to do with, um, with law enforcement over autonomous churches? It shouldn't have anything to do with it. And yet he's, he's still claiming, well, but, but we have issues with abuse and we need massive improvements to make churches safer. Okay, show us the evidence of that. Because right now, we're, we're, right now we're running around with this accusation hanging in the air that SBC churches and therefore church members and pastors are a bunch of sex abusers. It's a, it's a slime tactic. And it's just, I mean, I, I think they've, they, at this point, they've just overplayed their hand. They claimed that, you know, Back in 2021, when you had Grant Gaines bringing crying Hannah Kate up to the podium to manipulate everybody into thinking that sex abuse was all over the convention, and it it worked for them. They were able to, to the, the, these platform types were able to grasp power. Now they control the convention, and they don't have the receipts. They can't actually demonstrate that this is a systemic problem. Like, is it a problem in, in, in a church from, you know, from time to time? Sure, Absolutely. That's for that church and for local law enforcement to handle. We've been over this. But that's, that's not politically useful for these types to retain control over the organization itself. SBC Underground replies, yeah, that is an actual fallacy. Begging the question, you haven't demonstrated a fallacy. You've assumed one and expected everyone to play along. Very true. And I interpreted this to be, uh, quote, like as if they were saying this, you know, I'm just, I'm just surmising and, and uh, paraphrasing what I think is really being said here. Um, hey, SBC churches, you can't expect actual evidence of systemic abuse to be produced right away. But trust us, it's coming. We're confident we've accused the right denomination. In the meantime, keep confessing to the world and asking forgiveness for your role in all of this. And what are we seeing here? This is collectivism. 
This is collectivism, moral collectivism in the SBC. Hey, we, we're able to find evidence that there was abuse over here and sin over here and all that. And, and because it's tied to the convention, all SBC churches and pastors and members and things like that are guilty of this. That's what's being done. And why are they doing that? Why are they collectivizing the guilt? They're collectivizing the guilt so that they can manipulate these churches and pastors into supporting them, into, into action, into you know, bending to their will on these things and other things. That's what it's for. It's just a power grab. Because any person who actually understands how the SBC works and Baptist polity would rightly say if XYZ Baptist Church in Podunksville, wherever, has a, has a sex abuser in their midst, we take it to the cops. You know, handle that as your church. You are the ecclesiastical authority here. Handle it. And the most the convention could ever do is say, you haven't handled it, so we're going to disfellowship you. But thus far, this new uh, task force or whatever hasn't done any of that. I mean, if the sex abuse issue in the SBC was so rampant and so all over the place, why, after five months, have we not seen any of it? I mean, supposedly the previous executive committee had stacks, stacks of sex abuse cases, right? What, Where... What, you can't take action on it? At least demonstrate that you're doing what you're supposed to do? The truth is that they oversold this idea that, the, that abuse was all over, the, all over the convention, clearly. But they want to retain their power. They're not willing to admit they got it wrong. They're not willing to admit that they slimed and slandered and, and accused millions, millions of SBC church members um, of being collectively guilty for something that they had no part in. No, I went way longer than I than I than I intended to on that, but it just it it drives me up a wall that this this kind of stuff is still going on. Um, let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> excuse me. Let's talk a little bit about Al Mohler. We're gonna go through a clip of Al Mohler at a recent uh, conference talking about this very issue, abuse. Let's listen to the clip, and I'm going to commentate as we as we go through it here. I, I think when you look at this, there are a couple other things just very quickly that need to be said. And, and one of them is that there has been a wrongful instinct that has become apparent in many evangelical circles. And that wrongful instinct comes down to this. And, and, and it's basically what we would define as moralism, which is to say all we have here is a sin that we can understand. And we're going to deal with that because we understand that sin. So if you have a claim of abuse and they're two unmarried people, there's been a temptation in many evangelical circles to say, well, we don't have a clue what to think about on the abuse angle, but that's sin because they're having sex outside of marriage and that's all there is to it. And that's the limit of our responsibility. And now, now let me contextualize this. So Al Mohler is talking about a situation that is um, maybe analogous to the Jennifer Lyell um, uh, situation where, or, or even the, the Johnny Hunt situation where, Hey, there, there are people, um, engaged in some sort of, uh, sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. And now, um, that that's happened, you have one person claiming, um, an additional sin or an additional component to this of abuse, because one of those people was in some sort of an authority position. One of these people was, was, 
you know, taking advantage of the other. And so not only do we have this sexual sin involved in this, but the person who we're now determining to be in the, the advantageous position here relationally has de facto committed an additional sin of abusing this person. And in some cases, the, the, the person who is, uh, who does not have the relational advantage, the person here, uh, who we would say was, was in the subordinate role, perhaps relationally might even be excused for whatever sin that they participated in, in their role in this. Right. So this, this has been the, the argument is okay. If, if two unmarried people, um, sin sexually, but then we find out, well, one of those people was in a clear authority position over the other, like a college professor and a student or a pastor and a congregant or, um, you know, a, a, uh, you know, somebody higher up in an organization and somebody lower in that organization, there's a power dynamic. Um, we're going to assume that that power dynamic was the primary motivator or the primary driver of the behavior. And therefore the person in the authority, authority position is guilty of abuse. They actually take the, the potentially the, the guilt of the sin, the sexual sin away from the person that they abused and take it onto themselves. So that person is doubly guilty. And perhaps the, the other participant in this isn't guilty at all. This is the David and Bathsheba argument. That's what Al Mohler is talking about here. And he is chiding those of us that would say, well, the only sin that we can actually confirm with, with, with any, any, um, any any sort of uh, uh, solid solid evidence here is this is the sexual sin. We know that there was adultery committed. You know, we know that there was adultery voluntarily committed by both of these people. Now the person in the subordinate role is claiming abuse. I was manipulated into doing this. That's not an excuse for sin. And so we we rightly target the sin that's there, the sexual sin, the adultery. But he's now chiding us for the moralism of of not apparently not assuming the sin of abuse on top of this, which of course isn't a sin that we can really, that we can really have evidence of. So, so in the case of like a, a Jennifer Lyle situation, or even just say just a generic case, you have a, a college professor and a student and the college professor and the student uh, commit adultery together. And then the student later says, well, I felt like I was pressured to do that because he would have given me a lower grade or she would have given me a lower grade. So I, I felt pressured that I, I had to do that. Now that's possible. It's certainly possible that the college professor is, is guilty of deception and manipulation, guilty of abuse in that, in that, um, in that context, but it doesn't let the other person off the hook. And that's really where the, where the line is drawn needs to be drawn in this, in this conversation. And, and Al's just, he's just, ignoring that here and we now know that 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 is not enough that there is much more to the situation than that much more the 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 question of sexual sin does not disappear Uh, it is still the church's responsibility but there is a context of abuse in which i mean certain things are we just begin with the with the understanding that if you are in authority over someone then any kind of sexual expression or, 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 or sexual activity is just absolutely categorically wrong and rightly defined as abuse. Now, now I realize he misspoke here. All right. But, 
but he did let the cat out of the bag with the the critical theory component to this argument. He lets it out of the bag. So I think if he was called out on this, he would say, well, no, I don't actually mean any relationship where there's any sort of authority because there's authority within a marriage. There's headship within a marriage. And so that that sexual activity can't be determined to be abuse all the time. But you can see the slippery slope of where this goes. That that any anybody, especially especially a woman who could claim um, could claim that she was taken advantage of or manipulated in some way is now no longer guilty for her sin. This this crosses over into the abortion debate as well, doesn't it? If a woman who who makes a decision to get an abortion um, was pressured into doing it or convinced to doing it or manipulated into doing it, um, according to the pro-life movement and the current president of the SBC, Bart Barber, um, she's not guilty of sinning. Now, we can take this all the way back to Genesis. Eve herself was deceived, was she not? Eve was was tricked, so to speak. She was lied to. She was told things that were partially true and partially a lie by the serpent, and then she sinned. Guess what? She was still held responsible for that sin. You know, Adam could argue, I was deceived. You know, the woman tricked me, whatever. He's still responsible for that sin. And this is this is a very slippery slope that I don't think Al Mohler is is appreciating. And it's because it's Al Mohler. Al Mohler's a politician. He's he's a politician more than he's a theologian, and he's now found himself swimming in difficult waters, um, where he's trying to you know see which which way things are going to go, so he lands on the right side of things. And so for for evangelicals, this is a tough thing because we have to think in two tracks, and we have to understand both of them have biblical justification. And and one of them is we have to say that consent number one is not enough to establish a sexual act or relationship as morally right. It's not enough. Right. That's that's because adultery is a thing. You 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 can consent to sinning. In fact, most of our sins are we're consenting to sin in terms of our, our conscious decision. This is true. Um, very true. But consent does establish the idea that the other party is guilty of adultery. So if, if college professor so-and-so manipulates a female student into, a, into an affair, into, into committing adultery with him, has he taken advantage and manipulated her? Yes. Has she consented to it? Yes. Both are sinful. But the, the existence of a, uh, an advantageous or authoritative relationship here does not automatically constitute abuse. In fact, I would argue that every relationship, and certainly every sin that happens, there is a dynamic of advantage-disadvantage. It may not go the direction you think. It's possible that a student could take advantage of a pro- professor. That's also possible. And, and we would be, we, we get ourselves in trouble when we start to judge things that we can't actually rightfully determine, with things that we have no evidence of and we just assume. And that's the problem is this, this, this is um, standpoint theory, that standpoint epistemology we're seeing here. Well, the assumption is that because this person fits this category and this person fits this category, we now can assume that there are other sins that are a part of this, even though we, we don't actually have evidence of that, and minimize the sins that we do have evidence of. But we also have to understand it's not insignificant. 
it's not insignificant in that even if a sexual act or a sexual relationship is legitimate according to scripture, consent does not disappear as a, as a meaningful issue. And where there is no rightful sexual expression, uh, or sexual expression, I should say, that can only be sinful, the sin is infinitely compounded by abuse. I Infin- infinitely compa- I mean, granted, the last part of that statement was kind of a word salad. He's sort of all over the place. He's, 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 he's you know, arguing out of both sides of his mouth. But to, then, then, then he tops it off with the emotional, the emotional, um, the emotional end of the statement. It's, it's infinitely compounded. Well, no, it isn't infinitely compounded. It's sin. It's rebellion. It's something that God hates. It's something that needs to be uh, um, repented of and forgiven and, and avoided. Um, but but he's, to say it's, it's infinitely compounded by the fact that, well, that, that sin was, all, that, that sexual uh, you know, behavior between the two was already off limits because of adultery, and now it's infinitely compounded because there's a, there's a uh, power dynamic in this relationship. There are power dynamics in every relationship. That's just the way things are. God didn't create all of us the same with the same abilities or the same situation or the same talents or whatever. There's always a, there's always a dynamic in every relationship that moves things around. And to assume that that, that dynamic is automatically a major driving force in what is an actual sin in God's law Thou shalt not commit adultery is one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not abuse your power is not in the Ten Commandments. That's not to say that it can't be sinful, that that kind of manipulation can't be sinful, but to assume that that's the driving force behind an actual sin that's in the Bible, is, is a, it's just a dangerous place to be. Um, we got just one more, one more thing to get to. This, this podcast or the free side may go a little longer than I thought that we might have to continue it into the, into the PTVIP portion. Um, but I, I talked about this being um, on the thumbnail of this podcast, that you will pay a price. And let me, let me try to explain this quickly so we can get into the text that I want to talk about. For those of, for those of us that believe that discernment ministry, polemics ministry, um, this kind of public discussion and exposition of false doctrine and false teachers and theological debates is essential and, in fact, instructed to us in Scripture. It can make things really difficult for us on a personal level. It can make things very difficult for us um, at our home churches with, with Christians that we know, with family members. It strains relationships. And... It strains relationships very often through no fault of our own. Um, and like, like I said before, it's not that anybody's perfect. It's not that anybody always gets things right. But we're, we, we live in an era right now, in a situation right now, especially in the modern church, where the mere bringing up of a point, the mere bringing up of a, of a problem or a doctrine or the mere um, attempts to get clarification or correction or, or dis- discussion, even bringing it up is considered a problem in a lot of Christian circles. 
even the fact that you were willing to to challenge something would get you labeled as a troublemaker. It would get you labeled as a divisive person. It will get you labeled as unloving. And I did not, because for the longest time, I was basically a uh, financial supporter and a follower of a lot of discernment. And I still am a lot of discernment ministries online, you know, um, guys and gals that do this work that I financially support. And, and because I think it's important, but it's only been recently as, as you, you guys probably know only been recently that I've moved over to the other side where I'm actually doing the work myself. And while I can go back and look at my history with, um, you know, my church and, and people in it and see, see times even before I was directly involved where I, I believe I paid a price for being willing to actually say something, being willing to, um, to, to challenge something that I believed was wrong and believed I could defend biblically was wrong. And you know, it's gotten markedly worse. It's gotten markedly worse. And I guess I knew that was going to happen, but it still hurts. It's still unfortunate. And it's, it, it makes it difficult sometimes. I mean, I'll be honest with you. It makes it difficult sometimes to be at church and I wish it didn't. It's something that I'm that, that I struggle with that I pray about, but to know, or at least suspect that the fact that you are willing to publicly challenge, um, false teaching, publicly challenge false doctrine, unapologetically, just like Paul did in the synagogue, debate these things and have these conversations and not just sort of roll your eyes and do nothing. The fact that you're willing to do this will, will bring about hardship. Um, I talked in the description about this being, there being instances of Christians persecuting other Christians. Now, when we think persecution, we think, we think persecution in terms of, um, you know, being flogged in the streets or being thrown in prison or being killed for our beliefs. These are all, these are all valid examples of persecution. The most extreme examples of persecution are when your life or your liberty is taken away because of what you believe and, and what you're willing to say and proclaim um, of, of, you know, what you believe in, in your faith and your, in your, um, your belief in Jesus Christ, your belief in the word. Those are the most extreme examples, but these little things happen as well and, and smaller things and things that are still that, that are, um, sin also. And over the last, uh, few years, um, I mean, I've experienced things like this and I think, I, I think there are a lot of you out there that have been willing to, willing to, uh, speak out about some of these issues that have experienced the same thing. Uh, you wind up getting painted as, as a, a divisive person, a dangerous person, even within your own church. You wind up with, with church leadership having conversations about, um, about what they think about your motivations or your heart. Um, I had a conversation with a, a fellow church member uh, a little while ago for half an hour to an hour uh, where, where he would not... Um, he he didn't accept even the existence of ministries like this, so it it was more like you know he had an issue with something we said, and I tried to say, well, I mean, what's the content you have an issue with? And it never got that. It never got there. It was more like, um, why do you have a whole ministry based off of um, 
exposing and correcting false doctrine and false teachers. And, and it's so negative and it's so this and it's so that. And of course, we've talked about this before. They never put that same standard on any other ministry. So any, any other ministry, it, everybody, everybody's just fine with it being focused on a, a certain area of theology or practice, but not discernment and polemics that, you know, and, and why is that? Well, because it's, it's emotionally difficult. It's emotionally difficult work to do. It hurts. It hurts because you will eventually have to confront somebody that you care about. Much like Paul confronted Peter, you ha- that will happen. It's bound to happen. Iron sharpening iron means you know, sharp- sharpening is not a comfortable process necessarily. Iron sharpening iron is correction going both ways within a Christian relationship. And that might be a relationship between two church members, a, a, a member and a pastor, a pastor and a member. We're, we're supposed to be doing this for one another, but the modern church doesn't tolerate that at all. We would much rather just let it go and pretend like it didn't happen. And certainly within the local church context, um, that, that it's even more so because you know, pastors are rightfully, and, and sometimes I think you know, too fearful, but they're, they're rightfully concerned for their congregations. And unfortunately, they're as, in many cases, they're as or more concerned about the feelings of their congregations, about, about their emotional relationship with the, with the church body than they are about their, their sanctification. Um, I want to go over to right now, this is Luke 6. And of course, a lot of this is, is retold in Matthew as well, um, other gospels. Um, this is Luke 6, and I'm going to start in verse 1. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, saying, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? Now he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? And he was, he was saying to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So this is a situation where, um, where the Pharisees are trying to uh, pin something on Jesus because uh, his disciples were picking heads of grain and, and eating the grain on the fly. Now, it, of course, if you, look, if you look at the actual Old Testament law, this was the prohibition against uh, what they were doing on the Sabbath was a prohibition against um, earning profit and making money. It wasn't a prohibition against um, personally eating anything. Um, but we continue Luke 6, 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or destroy it? After looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, the Pharisees, they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Now, the reason I'm reading through this is, is you will find, unfortunately, in most churches, and, you know, and this is because churches are full of, full of sinners, and we're all we're all sinners. Uh, we all we all bear that flesh nature. But what you will find in a lot of churches is there there can be a almost a cultural and 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 like an underlaw. You know that's not a very good way to say it. But 
but a culture in churches where they have determined for themselves what is and what isn't acceptable behavior, kind of apart from what Scripture teaches, and and guise it under this this supposed push for unity. And one of the things that 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 churches will decry almost immediately is the idea of um, exercising biblical discernment in any sort of public way. Right. I mean, I the the. The, the church member, the friend of mine that I was talking to was talking about a pastor friend of his in town who, at the very mention of Protestia, the guy became visibly angry, visibly angry. He really hates what we do around here. Now, is it because there was a doctrinal issue with something? Well, no, no. I mean, they, they can make the subjective argument that, well, we don't like the language. We don't like the tone. We don't like how you said something. And, but in my experience, it doesn't matter how much you nuance the tone, how softly you say it, whatever, they will still have an issue. And a tone argument is unfalsifiable. You can't actually prove that it's sinful, which means you can't actually, you know, you can't prove it's righteous and you can't prove it's sinful. Not, not biblically speaking. Their only evidence for it, it being tone they don't like is, I didn't feel the right way when you said that. You said it some way where I felt a certain way, therefore it must be wrong. That's not a biblical standard. And yet that's what's used all the time. And unfortunately, in this kind of an environment, I'll tell you this straight up, if you are willing to be, and I can already see by the timing here, this is going to go over an hour, so it's not going to fit on the live stream, the live uh, TV channel at some point, unless I chop it up a little bit. That's okay, this is important. We're going to stick with it. If you will be in a situation if you are rightly discerning and willing to, because you love your church as much as you do, but because you love the truth of God's word more and you love Jesus more, you will find yourself, if you have the courage, you will find yourself in a situation where you are rightly correcting something, rightly bringing up an issue with the Bible in your hand to demonstrate why what you were, the issue that you were concerned with needs to be addressed. And there will be people in your church, likely people in your church, that even if you move their view on this to the point where it's, it's biblically corrected and it gets better, the fact that you brought it up at all, the fact, the fact that it had to be corrected will be held against you. There are discernment online ministers that I know and, and other just faithful members of churches that have decided to actually obey scripture and be, be discerning and rebuking when necessary and correcting when necessary, um, who have been thrown out of churches, who've been excommunicated from their churches, who have been um, ostracized from their churches, who have had ministerial opportunities um, denied them just because they were the ones that brought it up. Nobody likes to be corrected. It's embarrassing to be rebuked and to be have something brought up, especially when you're one of the people in the church, you're a pastor or something, and you're one of the people in the church who is charged with being the doctrinal standard bearer. It's, it's, it can be embarrassing to have a, a regular pew-sitting church member see something that you didn't see. That's just, that's just human nature. And unfortunately, 
with some of these actions, some of these things that can happen, it can, it can go beyond, um, just simply, you know, maybe a cold shoulder or, uh, you know, maybe the, the person looks at you with a little bit of suspicion or, um, a little bit of risk or they think you're dangerous in some way. Um, it can, sometimes it can go beyond that. Sometimes they can actually, uh, sin against you, plot against you. This, this stuff happens. Um, the reason that I'm in Luke here, I'm going to skip, skip down to Luke 6.20. And Jesus says, um, blessed are you, I'll start at the beginning of the verse, and turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now we know that this is not material poverty. This is spiritual poverty. This is spiritual humility. This is a spiritual understanding of our need for a Savior. Um, Moving on, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you, and this was the one that stuck with me for this topic, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Now let's, let's work through this a little bit. When men hate you, this happens all the time for those who are faithfully proclaiming the truth. Those that don't want to hear it will hate you, ostracize you. They'll, they'll keep you out of their, their insider groups. They will see you as someone to be marked and avoided, although they won't tell you that necessarily because it's, it's, it's wrong. What they're doing is wrong. And so they won't just say it to your face. They'll do it behind your back. They insult you. They may insult you to your face. That's possible. Many of my conversations that are critical of what, what's going on here at Protestia um, are categorically insulting. They're categorically insulting. So it's not, I have an issue with this specific thing you said or this specific thing you did. It's, I have an issue with the fact that this ministry even exists. Never mind the fact that it is evangelistic by nature, and we're going to talk about this in just a little bit. Never mind the fact that it's essential. Never mind the fact that it is commanded in Scripture to be discerning, to, to mark and avoid false teachers, to do all the things that we do here, to stay apprised of and, and, and be wise about what's going on. The insult will be something like this. Um, couldn't you do... Couldn't you be more positive? Couldn't you say this a different way? Why do you have to be like this? You know, this pastor I was telling you about that you know, this friend of mine talking to the pastor who was visibly shaken when Protestia was brought up, like visibly angry about it. And the assumption was that he was right and we were wrong. The assumption is always the first person to say something must be right. And then the person that comes and corrects them um, is, is the troublemaker, is the divisive one, is the one who's not out for unity. As if somehow... Unity is caused by just letting people say whatever they want to say, teach whatever they want to teach, promote whatever doctrine they want to promote, and the person that corrects it is automatically the, the divisive one. Nobody ever holds the first person that, or the, the person that preached the falsehood to the same standard. Never happens. That person is assumed to be right um, just because they, they said it first, apparently. They scorn your name as evil. 
for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of his truth, for the sake of the gospel and the truth of, the, of, of scripture, they will scorn your name as evil. They will call you evil. They will call you a wrongdoer. They will say, again, in the modern context, you're divisive. You're, you're, you're too harsh. You're too mean. Your tone is too bad. And it will not matter. Guarantee you, it will not matter how much you try to soften how you said it because it's the fact that you dared to correct it to begin with. It's the fact that you dared to actually try to faithfully proclaim the truth. You will pay a price if you are properly discerning. You will pay a price, and it's unfortunate because mature believers seek correction. They want correction. They want people to hold them accountable. They don't see someone correcting them as an offense to them personally, or to their position, or to the institution that they represent. They see it as appropriately as love. And they don't get caught up in that person trying to correct me because they love the truth and they love Christ. Um, Above all, that person trying to correct me didn't say this exactly the way that I think it should have been said. Therefore, I don't have to worry about the content of what was said. I don't have to worry about the the actual correction. Mature believers don't do that. And guess what? That's challenging because it hurts our feelings to be corrected. It hurts our feelings to be challenged. But the mature Christian response is to step back and say, you know, this is an imperfect person who, who has mustered up the courage to um, risk being nice, nicey nice with me all the time, risk, potentially risk this friendship, risk this relationship because the truth is more important to them. And, and even that, even me saying it that way will get, Will, will get me criticized. What do you mean that the, the, the truth, I mean, people are the most important thing. The truth is not supposed to be mo- more important than the people. That's what they'll say. Or sometimes you'll hear it this way. You'll hear it some, something along the lines of, um, if, if, if it's God's will, he will take care of it. You don't have to, which is in terms of God's sovereign, sovereign providence is true. And yet we're still called to be obedient. And that's the hard thing for people because you will be asked to be obedient in ways that are painful and in ways that um, might hurt somebody else's feelings. And you're going to get it wrong. You know, in, in your attempts to be obedient, you may sin. You're still bearing the flesh nature. It happens. It doesn't make it okay, but it's, it's, it's a reality. And we're certainly not called to to pull back and not be involved and not be obedient as the spirit leads us with these things just for the sake of somebody else's feelings or because we might get it, we, we might slip up and not say it the way that we should. Jesus goes on to say, be glad in the day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven for in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. Now this isn't, this isn't me trying to say that, when a fellow Christian reacts poorly because you've, you've dared to um, challenge something or attempt to correct something or attempt to, to expose something that's been taught falsely, this is not me saying that these are unbelievers you're dealing with or something like that, but it is quite possible 
quite possible, as Jesus says here, in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets, it is quite possible that you will have saved people, brethren, who will treat you poorly. They will sin against you because you've dared to, to actually open up your mouth and, and tell them the truth. And it, like I said, it won't matter how you say it. There will be no way to, to nuance it to the point where, where somehow um, they receive it and differently. It's not, about, it's not on you. Your job is to make sure that what you say is true and faithful to Scripture and that you're, in, and, and that you're not adding uh, needless emotionality and rhetoric and things that will get in the way of the truth of the message. You're bringing correction to people because you love them and you love the truth. It says, I'll, I'll skip uh, forward here to verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. What is Jesus indicating here? When all men speak well of you, we're talking all men in terms of the saved and the lost, those who are God's people and those who are not. If they are all speaking well of you, woe to you. Their fathers treated false, false prophets can do that. False prophets can get a wide, wide breadth of approval from everybody. So I wouldn't say that every single time someone is upset at you or mad at you or, or, or treats you poorly, that it's evidence that you're doing the right thing, but often it is. And that's the price that we have to pay for being focused on the truth of the word and, and willing to say it. It will strain your relationships. It will strain your relationships with other believers. And yet it is a, it's a spiritual battle. And it is the Holy Spirit that does the work, not only of regeneration, but of course, of pointing to Christ and of, of correction within the hearts of, of believers. And are, are, we willing to, are we willing to risk um, not, not being liked or being um, suspicious to people around us because they know that we're willing to speak out? I hope so. That's what the church needs. And in the same way that, that we're willing to do that, uh, or for the same reason that we're willing to do that, we, we do our best to be obedient in every other area of ministry. I said at the beginning of this podcast that, I, that we were going to talk a little bit about the, the evangelism that is part of the nature of polemics and discernment ministry. Now I have, I'm not going to put them on the screen or expose people or whatever because these are private communications. Um, but I have emails, plenty of emails from people, and I'm sure that um, other ministers that do this work have emails from people that, that say, reading Pulpit and Pen, reading Protestia, reading um, Dissenter, Reformation Charlotte, reading these websites actually um, was pivotal to bringing me to true faith in Jesus Christ. And those who are, who are Christians or you know, pastors or, or institutional leaders that don't like what we do, they don't like this component to it. Too bad. Too bad. It's, it's, yeah, I'm going to tell you why, why this is important. These emails say things along those lines. This is what brought me to true faith. Now, well, well, why would exposing false teachers? I mean, shouldn't we, like Lori Frank said in her tweet, 
Shouldn't we just be preaching the gospel? That's the mission. Preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Yes, it is. And yet the Bible says that there are false prophets, false messiahs, false gospels, false teaching all over the place. Wide is the path to destruction. And so when a discernment minister, a polemics ministry, specifically calls out someone who's teaching a false gospel, a false church, um, a false doctrine that is heretical in nature or damaging in nature to the proclamation of the true gospel, that we're, we are trying our best to be obedient in bringing the true gospel into the conversation um, of those that claim Christ and yet don't preach the true gospel. So the, the, those who claim to be Christians and yet believe in a false gospel or members of these churches that preach false gospels, they're not saved, they're lost. They're the mission field. They are the mission field every bit as much as the atheist out there that hates God, that, that overtly hates God. You know, Jesus said himself that there will be many that cry to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. Think about the millions of people that claim to be Christians, that claim the name of Christ and yet are unregenerate and lost in their trespasses and sins. They're going to hell. They're going to hell, and it's, it's almost worse in a way to me because they think they're saved. They may think they're saved. They have a, fal- a false security based off of believing in a false gospel. And so when we do the work of discernment and polemics and say, this is a false gospel, let, me, let, let us contrast this with the true gospel, this is a, but this is a false one. This is why we get emails that say, this, this ministry work uh, was pivotal to me coming to true salvation in the true Jesus Christ because I was following a false Jesus. I was believing in a false gospel. I was wrapped up in, in a false culture, false beliefs, all sorts of, of, of false doctrine. And it was not until um, God saw fit to place my eyes in front of an article on the internet that told me what I was believing was false. And here's why this is false. Here's the true gospel that I came to a true saving faith in Jesus Christ. This happens far more frequently than any of the people that get visibly shaken at the name of Protestia would like to admit. They would, they would rather um, just have no accountability. They would rather be able to preach whatever they want to preach with nobody checking it, no Bereans out there testing everything. They don't want that. But this ministry and others like it are evangelistic in nature. And yes, we do a, a lot of correction that would apply to Christians, regenerate Christians needing to repent of a false doctrine or a false understanding of God's way. That's, that's part of the pr- process of progressive sanctification, but there's also lost people out there that claim the name of Christ, that they think they, they, think they believe in Jesus. They, they call themselves Christians. They do all of the Christian-y things that one would expect. They look like us. They, 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 they talk like us or walk like us, and, and they say all the right things. And it's much, much easier for us to just stand by and say, hey, they're saved now. That's not our problem. Even, even if we found out, well, they, they really believe in a false gospel here. They don't, you know, they're, they're describing um, an unbiblical version of Jesus as the person that they have their faith in. It would be easier for us to just say, well, yeah, but they say they're Christian, so that, that's their problem. But that's not what the Bible instructs. That's not, what, that's not being obedient to the Lord. And so I would encourage you 
for those of you that have felt this, this pressure, that have had these things happen to you, that have been ostracized, that have been um, insulted, that have been scorned, that have been called evil, called false Christians, um, have been hated, not, not substantively, not because they, they actually ha- have a real issue with what you said, but the fact that you said it at all. The fact that, that you were actually, actually had the courage to test things and correct. I would encourage those of you that have experienced this to not lose, not lose faith. To, I mean, be encouraged. Verse 23 said, be glad in that day. Be glad in the day. Leap for joy. Now, this is the day that you were hated. You're ostracized. You're insulted. This is difficult to do because it hurts. It's personal. These may be people close to you. These may be people that, that would claim um, brotherhood with you. They would claim to, to be, to be um, interested in unity and whatnot, and they will hurt you. They will sin against you. They will accuse you of things. They will talk about you behind your back. I know this because I've seen it happen. And I think a lot of you have seen it happen as well. And it's unfortunate, but it is, it's the reality. I would encourage you to have joy. Jesus said, your reward is great in heaven. And that's something that we, we can all look forward to, even when we are persecuted by, by brethren, and it happens. Um, anyway, if you are a, if you are a patron member, stay, stay on, I'm, I'm saying stay on the video. Uh, the patron portion is going to be at an, an audio version here for sure. Um, an audio version for sure. And I might put up the video version, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be on YouTube because again, not a free speech platform. So we need to move somewhere where they actually uh, value the first amendment um, as something beyond, beyond mere words. They actually believe in it, which they don't at Google and YouTube. So thank you very much for joining me for this episode of Protesti tonight. For all the troublemakers here at protestia.com, thank you for joining us. We will be with you again next time. Again, patrons, stay on the audio version because we're going to go straight into it. And I will provide a link in Patreon for the Patreon Patreon, uh, video portion. Um, Thank you all again. We'll talk to you next time. As always, Semper Reformando.